I, this is horrible. And he says, emigration must stop. Emigra- really? Which is what he's been saying all along is emigration must stop if the troops are coming here. So basically he says, I knew this was going to happen. Emigration must stop. This is horrific. And then when Lee leaves, we have a clerk's entry for that day that it just says, uh, Brigham Young left his office at 11.30 a.m. feeling sick. Probably went home and was like, just take another wife. That'll make me, (laughs) that's what cheers me up. Welcome everybody back to the Mormon History Hoedown. My name is Kara Burrell. Sometimes I go by Nuanto and sometimes I and all of us are the beneficiary of decades of heartfelt research by historians like Barbara Jones Brown. So welcome, Barbara, back to the podcast as we talk about your fantastic book, Vengeance is Mine, Thanks, part four. Cara. Thanks for having me back. It's always a great conversation with you. Yeah. People have been uh, really liking our series together. That's great. Yeah. And um, I know we get into some really heavy topics and you do such an eloquent job of explaining them. And you have uh, this book under your belt and several <laughs> others. But um, we thought that for this episode, we would just kind of jump into where we left off last time on a very down and depressing note. So if you want to take us through, let's do more down what? and depressing. <laughs> just carry it on. <laughs> yeah. And so if, if listeners are not familiar, we're talking about the Mountain Meadows Massacre, um, which uh, you can go back and watch parts one through three to understand more about uh, Barbara's research and passion for this subject and why we talk about it and all of the events that led up to this massacre that occurred to a group of uh, Arkansas immigrants passing through the Utah Territory in 1857, killing about 100 innocent men, women, and children. Please check out parts one through three as we jump into part four here, and then we're just going to keep on going until they tell us to stop talking <laughs> about it. All right. So where do you want to take us today now, Barbara? What else do you so, want to review? Too? We left off talking about the massacre itself and, and how it was completed, and uh, that was completed on September 11th, 1857. And again, watch the prior episodes if you want to dig deep into that. But basically, we left off with the militiamen, Mormon militiamen who were perpetrators of the crime, bringing the surviving children, the children that they spared because they were, quote, too young to tell tales, uh, 17 children aged six and under, most of them toddlers and babies, bringing them to the north end of the mountain meadows, which is where Rachel Hamlin was living with her children and also um, Caroline Beck Knight and Samuel Knight, who were living there working for the Hamlins, helping them to build an adobe house. So the militiamen pile these surviving children into the back of a wagon and they bring them up to poor Rachel Hamlin's door, who she knows something's going on at the meadows, but she's not privy to all the inner workings. All of a sudden they show up in the evening of September 11th, uh, she looks in the back of the wagon, and there are 17 blood-stained and crying and traumatized mm-hmm. children. And they turn them over to her and say, take care of these kids. She cares for them all night long. And her adopted Shoshone son later says that the children cried all night. Mm-hmm. And again, we're talking about the children that were spared this slaughter just because they said that they wanted um, to kill everybody except for the ones who like were too young to tell tales. Exactly. But... 
Yeah, they were some trying of the to, tales were actually told. Exactly. Yeah, they were trying to wipe out all the witnesses um, that became aware that uh, Mormon militiamen were in involved in all these Indian raids, or, or excuse me, um, raids of cattle that they were blaming on Indians, and again convincing Indians to participate with them in raiding cattle so they could blame the whole thing on Native Americans. So again, dig deep into those prior episodes to learn more sure. about what we're talking about. So in the early morning hours of September 12th, in the pre-dawn darkness, the two armchair leaders of the crime, William Dame of Parowan and Isaac Haight of Cedar City. These are the two top militia leaders who also happen to be state presidents in the LDS Church. They arrive because they kind of want to see what's what's happened at the Mountain Meadows. They say that they're going out there to try and stop it. There's no indication that they were that, that they had changed their minds. So I think that they were going out just to observe what happened and make sure that it was done. They arrive, and as soon as they get there and they hear the crying children, they start arguing about who's going to take responsibility for this. Mm -hmm. Then they, they gra grab some breakfast at Hamlin's Ranch, and then they start heading south into the Mountain Meadows. And as they're doing so, the, the dawn breaks, and the sun comes up, and the darkness starts to pull back the covers, as we, as we describe it from the valley and they start seeing the twisted mutilated forms of all these people who have been massacred they see the women and children first and then as they ride a little bit further south they see militiamen dragging the men into a ravine and making a mass grave oh my gosh. and when they see the horror the carnage of what they have done what they have ordered they are horrified uh they start arguing william dame says you told me that most of them were already killed i had no idea there were so many i had no idea there were so many women and children mm -hmm. and isaac has said eight hate says you ordered this done you told me to do this you can't back water now and they just start arguing furiously about who's going to take blame for this rather than mourning the dead that mm -hmm. lay at their feet and who's so, overhearing these conversations? So the other militiamen that are still at the Mount Meadows, they're overhearing this. So John D. Lee, who was a leader, one of the leaders in carrying out the crime, um, and some other militiamen, Samuel Knight, Philip Klingensmith, who was the Bishop of Cedar City, they're overhearing these arguments, and they all talk about it later, about what's going on with these arguments. Mm -hmm. So originally it was kind of intended to cover up, like we said, what these cattle raids were doing and then basically like this embarrassment i would call it of like the them being caught and then these shots yeah, being fired back and forth more than embarrassment yeah it was they were truly fearful in this this um atmosphere of war yeah. with troops marching on the territory they were truly afraid that this was going to come back on them and that they might be and that's and like killed. the irony yeah. of all ironies is yes, like yes. they were i say embarrassed because i'm thinking like oh we were trying to blame this on the Indians and, oh, we were trying to tell the U.S. government that this is no big deal and we got everything under control over here. And when things, when push comes to shove, they, the people are starting, the word is getting out that what is actually going on and they're just trying to save cover face and cover it up yeah. and create a thousand times more of a catastrophe. Exactly. That it's like, where, exactly. how, how is, where is the foresight that like, 
people could people could probably understand the circumstances yeah. before we could see where you're going with that Brigham Young, but there's nothing to see where you're going with ordering this slaughter. There's nothing here that makes yeah. any sense. They like honestly, it's going to get out. Yeah, I mean what they say is they honestly believe that they could carry this out, blame the whole thing on local Indians and that people would believe this is 19th century stereotypes, racialized views of Native Americans in the 19th century. They would believe, oh yeah, these, these savage Indians came along and wiped all these people out. Yeah, that's what they thought could happen. Um, it was very naive, stupid, frankly, and horrific to mm -hmm. uh, participate in such a big mass murder mm -hmm. in order to cover up something that wasn't nearly as bad, just a cattle raid. Yeah. Originally. And so, <laughs> so when they're, when they're yeah. seeing these bodies and fighting over them and they're starting to realize yeah. like, now we have the biggest catastrophe on our hands yeah. where it went from. Well, what they're arguing about. So Isaac hate. So William Day's dame who was from Parowan he, and it wasn't his idea to carry out the massacre. It was hates. And he just got Dame's permission to call out the militia. He convinces Dame that this needs to be done. So he needs to call out the local militiamen in Cedar City. He needs Dame's permission because Dame is the head of the militia, the yeah. Iron Military District. So, um, so Dame says, well, we've got to report this when they see it. And Hate says, how? As an Indian massacre? And he means reporting it to Brigham Young, who's mm -hmm. the governor and the president of the church. And Dame says, I'm not so sure I would report this as an all-Indian massacre. And he says, how the hell it, would you want to report this then if you want to blame it on, on, on ourselves? And he says, "It's got to be. we've got to report it as an all-Indian massacre. And that's what they end up doing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, they, so not only do they start out trying to cover it up from the federal government and from outsiders. Then they start covering it up to church leaders in Salt Lake City as well. So there's a massive cover-up. So they have these arguments and so forth, um, and then they start heading back to Cedar City, back to the settlements. And as they're heading back, they come across a train of freighters. And what that means, today we have we hear of freight trucks, right? Big trucks that truck supplies across the country. These were freighters back then were on mules, a mule train, and they would freight supplies back and forth between California and Utah. So a train of freighters is coming through on the same trail that everybody travels and they're on their way. They're almost get to the mountain meadows and then they come across departing militiamen leaving the scene, mm -hmm. um, heading back to the settlements and there are two non-Mormons who are traveling with these freighters. They're kind of observing things and they're figuring things out and they're saying something's off here. And when they arrive in California, they report what they've seen and they've heard and they've figured out that Mormons are involved in this by the time they get to California. So again, mm -hmm. nobody was hiding anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the 17 children are taken by the bishop of Cedar City. His name is Philip Klingensmith. He places them in homes throughout Southern Utah. Uh, they're separated for the most part and encouraged to forget, mm -hmm. particularly the older ones. The babies, of course, forgot. Mm -hmm. And uh, some, many of the perpetrators of the crimes themselves are the ones that take these children into their homes. So John D. Lee takes a child. Uh, uh, John M. Higby, a perpetrator, takes a child. Philip Klingsmith initially takes a child, a nursing baby, because his wife is nursing her own baby. 
um, they take that baby initially. So anyways, they all are kind of farmed out and typically to into a family of one of the perpetrators. I know you're a historian and not a therapist, but is that healthy? <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah, it does you don't have to be a therapist to know that that's not healthy. Oh, yeah, goodness. yeah. These poor children, poor kids, what yeah. they went through is just horrific. The kids that were old enough to remember, what were they able to connect about, like why they were living with these new families and yeah. if they had any memories of who these people were or where their parents were? Yeah. So a year and a half later, the children are retrieved by federal agents, uh, primarily a man named um, Jacob Forty, who figures out where the children are, because Jacob Hamlin tells him. Jacob Hamlin is an Indian agent for the government. He is up in Salt Lake City, and he reports to Jacob Forty, who's come in from the east. He says, I know where the children are. In fact, I have three of them in my own home. Jacob Hamlin was not a perpetrator, but Rachel Hamlin, she took three little Dunlap girls and she insisted that she keep those three kids together because the baby was the one who had had right. her arm almost shot off. And her two older sisters, who were four and six, begged to be able to stay with their baby sister. So Rachel stands up to John D. Lee, wow. and she says, those three girls are staying with me. She's, a, she's one of the few heroes in the story, but she keeps the, the children together. And so because of that, those three little girls, they remembered who they were. So when they're re when they're retrieved a year and a half later by Jacob Forney, the federal agent, they're able to tell the agent their names mm -hmm. that they're Dunlap. They remember that because they were together, and so they could help each other remember their six, four, and one at the time of the massacre. Um, a couple of the older boys remember their names, their first names, and uh, a little bit of their last names. They describe kind of where they had come from. They could describe the county they had lived in. But again, they were the oldest was six. And so they kind of have just very sketchy memories of where they came from and who they were. And of course, the toddlers and babies, mm -hmm. they, they have no memory. Yeah. Of that, of course. But at the time, they were in sight of everything that was happening. Yeah, those, they were in full those, view of they witnessed their they witnessed their mothers being murdered. They, they witnessed their siblings being murdered. I I can't even yeah. comprehend the trauma those people went oh through, gosh. and uh, and including those surviving children. It's horrific. So they're placed with different families, families all around, yeah. including perpetrators. Yeah, throughout Southern Utah. So the militiamen they returned to the communities that they had come from. And John D. Lee, for example, goes back to Harmony, Utah. It was a fort at the time. And they arri they all arrive home on Sunday morning because Saturday uh, they are spending burying the men in this mass grave. And so by the time they get back to Harmony and Cedar City, it's, it's Sunday morning. Lee walks into the fort uh, meeting house where church service is taking place. And he walks in walks up to the front and starts bragging about what has happened. And he um, comes in with a group of local uh, Ash Creek Band Native Americans that he has cajoled into going to the meadows with them. He marches them around the fort. He passes them out presents, food and things. They come in with a lot of booty, a lot of spoils. Uh, and then he goes up and he starts bragging and he's saying, hurrah for Israel. We have that our enemies have come into our hands. We've killed our enemies. <sighs> it's hard to comprehend that mm -hmm. when he knows most of those people killed were children. 
So he's bragging about it. And as he's up, you know, retelling the story and how it happened. um, And incidentally, he says there are 96 victims that are counted. He's relaying it as a dream. He's saying, I've, I've had a dream. I've had a vision and this is what happened. And, um, but everybody knows it's not just a dream. So um, he talks about killing a man and a baby, the baby that this man is holding. And he's trying to get the man to turn over the baby and the man won't. And so he shoots uh, a bullet that goes through the body of the baby and the heart of the man, killing them both with one shot. Yeah. Unbelievable. And he's up there bragging in a church service. Yes. uh So the local people are horrified. They're not like loving his sermon. They're not. The collection plate is being passed and they're (laughs) saying they're filling it with vomit and tears. (laughs) Gosh. Yeah. So anyways, I mean, they're afraid of Lee. Lee's a violent man even before the massacre that, you know, he's, he, he makes threats. Yeah. They're afraid of him. So they're sitting there and he's doing this. And then they describe a messenger coming in and he walks to the front of the building and he hands Lee a slip of paper and Lee reads it. And then after that, he stops saying what he's been saying. And then the, the cover up starts with even local people. It's a movie. It's like it's such a movie. It's, it's so not dramatic. when he's out and using the can. It's not when it's in the middle of the night. It's no, when he's, he's in the middle of the most violent retelling of everything that he has just done in the most graphic, disgusting, mm-hmm. horrific manner. And mid sentence of that story, somebody walks out with a messenger and hands him a piece of paper. Yeah. And that's according to people that were sitting in the audience. That's what they remember. So at the end of our last episode, when we were talking about just the details of the horrific massacre, I wanted to end on reading this section about what Barbara just described. One, so that you go pick up a copy of Vengeance is Mine, whether in hardback or audiobook. Audiobook is amazing, too. The person needs a freaking Oscar for the way that they get into the characters. It's really good. So... I wanted to read that section right now because the way that it's laid out is so chilling. Lee gave the immigrant another chance to hand over the baby, but he refused. Then Lee told the congregation, it was my turn to shoot. He killed the baby and the man with the same bullet. Defending his actions to the stunned Harmony residents, Lee explained that he did not consider himself under the penalty of shedding innocent blood. The killing of the baby, he said, could not be helped. As the congregation listened to Lee's chilling account, a messenger interrupted entering the room and walking up to hand Lee a note. Reading it, Lee went silent about the massacre. And then it goes on to say, as the congregation came downstairs from Lee's Sunday speech, Hogue spotted children she had not seen before. One of them, a boy called Calvin, was weeping. Though he was only six, his height made him look seven or eight. Pointing to a man called Indian Joe, the boy cried, that was the Indian who killed his pa, for he had his best coat and pants on. Hogue did not see the child again. They said they had to keep the child secreted, she said. Then it goes on to describe all the other things in detail. After, uh, so after Lee gets that note and people are stunned and people are putting those pieces together, 
lay out what happens next. So you were quoting Annie Hogue, who was the one who testified about this experience. Her husband at the time, they they later divorced, but her husband at the time, his name was um, Peter Schertz. That's why she has a different last name because of the divorce. But Peter Schertz talks to Lee after this church meeting. And Lee says, yeah, I related all that, but it wasn't a dream. This this was in really? reality. Okay. It wasn't it wasn't a dream or a vision. This actually happened, and um, and even if he didn't, everyone would have known anyway. Uh, yeah, it's not like he was fooling anyone or anything like that. So um, he shares more details with Peter Schertz, but then Peter Schertz says that after that note arrives, and the, and we believe it's the note that came from Br- Brigham Young, and we could talk about that in a minute, but. Um, the one that came on horseback where he's yeah, like... Yeah, the, the express rider coming back with the letter from Brigham Young. After Lee gets that note, then he starts... Peter Schertz says that they start telling everybody in the community not to talk about Lee's speech on Sunday. And if anyone did talk about it, they would get their tail cut off just below the ears. It's really... Like, what a what yeah. a sentence! Yeah, I mean, y- you could tell that's like truly nineteenth century parlance because who who would make that up today, right? Yeah, it was a direct quote oh, from God. Peter Schertz. He says that's what they're telling everybody. <laughs> and so, I have a side question. Sure, a side quest. Sure. So how how serious did the Mormons like follow their leaders? At that time, and how mm-hmm. serious did they take those types of, of threats? Yeah. And and like also feeling like they're under attack and this kind of Mormon war. And then they also have like their salvation on the line in terms of like the Mormon like reformation and what yeah. they're at their prophets asking them to do. Like what were like the spiritual mindset, yeah. I guess. So at that time? if you're talking about 1857, I mean there's definitely very heightened emotions because of the troops that are approaching the territory and the the rhetoric of we're going to fight the troops we're not going to let them drive us again and there's a lot of fear like what are the troops intentions what is the federal government's intentions with us are we going to be driven again um, are they going to occupy our territory so there's that that sense of fear and then combine that with the religious um mormon reformation that's 1856 and 1857 which is you know be more committed i mean and, and the commandments that they're talking about be more committed to a lot of them are the same today like pay your tithing go to church every sunday be honest don't steal things um but also practice polygamy <laughs> um so they're they're more basic but the rhetoric, the violent rhetoric, is kind of what contributes to a culture of violence, mm-hmm. I think. And, you know, and it was also a different time, you know, that you don't have established police forces, for example. And so, I don't want to say it was the Wild Wild West, but it kind of was, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think that all just kind of comes into play at mm-hmm. the same time. So and of when, course, the massacre is just this hideous, huge um, case of mass murder. But there, it wasn't like, and and we document and talk about other cases of murder in the book, including one case of, of blood atonement that we could document. But it wasn't like everybody was going around killing everybody. That mm-hmm. you can you can form that ad- opinion reading a book like this, where we do go into the violence, but. Mm-hmm. Because one of the reasons yeah. I ask that is because when sure. people are told that they need to keep quiet about this, yeah, and on one hand, and threatened like, with their within with their life, I think yeah. they, I think those were true threats, yeah, yeah, and I think people really did fear for their lives that if they talked about it, they could be taken out, yeah, yeah, and I then you that combine that with how much you feel like you need to uh, 
keep these secrets to also mm -hmm. have a better representation of Mormons and where that blame is going to fall on anyone but your religious structure and anyone but your leaders and your prophets trying to uphold the good name of the church. And those are kind of some of the through lines that I see between yeah. like some types of Mormon history till today, like mm -hmm. where we can see things that are atrocious that need to be spoken up about, but we fear for our salvation or we yeah. fear for yeah. letting down people when something needs to have justice. Yeah. Yeah, today it's more of just like, you know, perceptions about the church. Then it was literally about whether or not they were going to survive this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I yeah. as a person who is an ex-Mormon and things, um, I think that sometimes I get accused or people in the space get accused of not understanding like the traumas and the fears and the tensions that all came from like Nauvoo and Missouri that led into the, those types of things. But um, that is a huge part of Mormon history is a lot of persecution and also a lot of violence back and forth um, as yeah. perpetrators and victims. Yeah. And I think like, even like talking about the map being, you know, people will ask, well, if the mountain meadows was covered up for generations so long, you know, why are you willing to talk about it today? And it's because by talking about mountain meadows, nobody's going to be murdered over it. Um, the church isn't going to be destroyed by it. The church isn't going to go away by it. It's not threatened by it anymore. So it's safe to talk about today. Whereas mm -hmm. before it was literally just really scary. Yeah. For people. Yeah. 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 So scary for people to talk about it in the direct aftermath as well. Exactly. So they're told everyone be quiet or yeah. well, and, and the the local perpetrators were also so what happens is backing up a little bit. So as we talked about in a prior episode, Isaac Haight had sent a letter to Brigham Young, an express writer to Brigham Young, asking what should we do about the situation? That letter arrives back in Cedar City on Sunday morning, September 13th. So as John D. Lee is up preaching, it's arriving in Cedar City. Isaac Haight gets it and he's He's just been at the Meadows. He's seen the horror of what he has ordered. Um, and he is waiting, watching for that express rider. His name's James Haslam. He's looking for Haslam, and he's hoping that maybe Young is going to condone his decision. So I think that's telling, too, mm -hmm. that he thought Young might condone it. Um, but he gets the letter, and he reads it in front of Haslam. He reads it, and... It says, if those who are there will go, let them go in peace. The Indians will do as they please, but you must not meddle with them. Let them go in peace. So Hate reads that, and it, uh, Haslam describes him crying like a baby. Breaks down crying, and he says, too late, too late. So... We believe, we don't know what was in that note that Lee gets, but we believe that Hate wrote, you know, Young said not to do this, don't talk about it. Whatever he writes, whatever Lee reads in that note, he stops talking about it immediately and then starts covering it up. So then mm -hmm. they start covering it up, not only to outsiders, or initially to outsiders, oh, this was an Indian massacre, then they start covering it up to church leaders in Salt Lake City and their fellow church members. Mm -hmm. um, the wow. local people in Cedar City, they know what happened. But the leaders in Southern Utah, they start threatening the local people, don't talk about this or your life could be in danger. 
Mm-hmm. And and we have quotes from different local people who weren't participants, you know, women and things who say, yeah, hate told us to not talk about, and they knew they had to cover it up because we was aware of the whites being guilty, wow. one woman says. And so the, the home teachers are sent around to um, tell home teaching program used for evil. I never never would have thought. Used for cover-up, exactly. And they say things like, if you see a dead man lying on your wood pile, that's none of your business. Just don't talk about it. Just go about your business, for example. They're just throwing that out. Not that they're going to see a bit, but just like, even if you see a dead wood man somewhere, don't talk about it. (laughs) So it's just this real culture of fear. So that's why all the local people who know about it, even if they didn't participate in it, they they've seen what's going on. You totally. know, it's, sometimes it's their house husband or a family member. They know what's going, what's happened, and they are silenced out of fear. So that happens in Cedar City. That happens in um, Harmony, as I mentioned, where John D. Lee was from, and then also in the community of Washington, which was south of the Mountain Meadows. Those men come back. And initially, they're bragging about it in a church meeting, saying this is part of our revenge for what, you know, how they see killing women and children from Arkansas as revenge for what happened in Missouri makes no sense. But they're like, this is revenge against the Gentiles, and they're bragging. And then the same thing, um, then a letter arrives in Washington, and then they change their tune as well. So that's the beginnings of the cover-up, not only to outsiders, but also to each other, to fellow Latter-day Saints and their church leaders in Salt Lake City. Now I will have my snarky ex-Mormon opinion. Prophets, seers, and revelators. Man, this is some... Anyone could tell that this is not going to be able to stand a wraps whatsoever. You have all kinds of militiamen, their families, everybody in Southern Utah is going to be aware of this it's going to spread yeah it shows that presidents of the church are men they're human beings very capable of making mistakes very capable of being bamboozled they're humans yeah yeah and again my snarky opinion is going to come in again because (laughs) that line of like if we can just forgive the prophets because (laughs) they're not here to defend themselves and they were men of their time and i'm like even for men of their time even even for men of their times there's no excuse or justification for this horrific thing that happened absolutely absolute power perhaps absolutely yeah yeah so um Hate calls Lee in shortly after this. He calls him for a meeting from Harmony, and they meet, and uh, Hate says, we're in a muddle. We're in trouble. We did something. This carried out this mass murder. Um, I want you to go report it to Brigham Young. Okay. Who, who again? Hate? This is Isaac Hate. Big man on Cedar he's, City. He's the primary one who ordered this. Yep. Um, he had to have Dame's permission, so there's fault on Dame as Paramount well. Militia and leader. then Lee is there carrying it out. You know, I mean, they're all very guilty of this horrific crime. But so anyway, so Hate says to Lee, we're in a muddle. We need you to go report this to Brigham Young. Let him know what happened. Do they draw straws or something? Well, Lee says to him, why don't you report it? And Hate says, oh, you could you could do it just as well as I do. Um, you're a good talker. Like, you, you should be the one to do it. And so Lee just kind of plays right into Hate's hands, and he says, okay. So Lee goes up for general conference. Wow. He leaves with his bishop from Harmony. They ride up. 
to attend General Conference, which is the first weekend in October. And he arrives on September 29th, 1857. And we know exactly what he said because he shows up and Lee asks for a meeting. He requests a private meeting with Young. But Young asks assistant church historian Wilfred Woodruff, who was also an apostle, he asks him to come into the meeting as well. And Woodruff is an inveterate diarist. Every day, he's he's got some of the best uh, diaries of church history because he was recording what was happening every day. So he asked Young or Woodruff to come into the meeting as well. And Woodruff writes what Lee tells Young, and he lies through his teeth. He says that it was an all Indian massacre that um, the white men hear about it, and then they ride out after it's all over to bury the dead. Did Lee know that the express rider went up to yes. ask him? Yes. So he knew about that. Yep. So he that doesn't make any sense, right? Because yep. Brigham Young already was like, hey, if you're thinking about committing a massacre, <laughs> don't do it. Well, I don't think, I, I think we don't know what hate wrote. We just know what the response was back to hate. And then we just know what, People described what the note said as it's traveling north. Later witnesses said, yeah, Haslam came through bringing a note to Young and it said this. So for whatever reason, that letter didn't survive or was lost. Who knows? But we just know that it does not exist. It's it's not in the in the records of what Haight wrote to Young. So probably what Haight wrote to Young was when, when you look at what Young wrote back in his letter, and then you look at what witnesses said was in that note that hate carried to young and what haslam says that was in that note carried to young was just something to the effect it wasn't fully forthcoming it just said something to the fact that there's a group of emigrants circled nearby what should we do with them um he, he must have mentioned indians because young writes back the indians will do as they please but you must not meddle with them so it, it's not I don't think it was very forthcoming. If you if you look at all those accounts, you know he didn't say they know that we're involved. You know, we just don't know. So, anyways, Lee um, he lies and he says it was an all Indian massacre. We just went out after the fact and buried all the dead. And Lee is still kind of bragging about it to Young. And saying that, you know, these people are really bad. He claims, this is so funny, makes no sense, but he claims that they were part of the mob in Missouri and Illinois. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, they were from Arkansas, but. Um, I feel I feel like my old 2021 20, TikTok Kara coming on that I need to personify okay. this Lee in a very <laughs> satirical TikTok-y way. Yeah, you of, can use his words. I literally could of just one of those guys who's like, I didn't do it, but if I did, they deserved it. And, uh-huh. you know, just like in case you didn't know it was the Indians, but also in they case you find it out anyway. it wasn't, it's the mob from Missouri. It's like, yeah. Exactly. That's, that's thou doth possess too much. I don't yeah, know. Exactly. And and he says, I mean, he just starts uh, victim blaming and just saying horrible things about the people that this happened to. And uh, he even he even says this about the little children. He says, uh, initially, apparently, he had two in his home because he says, I can't get them to kneel down to pray and the children swear like pirates and these are just really bad <laughs> bad people and and young is is appalled and he says 
I, this is horrible. And he says, emigration must stop. Emigration, really? which is what he's been saying all along is emigration must stop if the troops are coming here. So basically he says, I knew this was going to happen. Emigration must stop. This is horrific. And then when Lee leaves, we have a clerk's entry for that day that it just says, uh, Brigham Young left his office at 1130 AM feeling sick, feeling ill. Oh, so he had a heart at least in some, he did have a heart. Yeah. Some fast fashion. He, he did have a heart. Yeah. So, and perhaps young, we don't know, this is purely speculation, but perhaps he's like, whoa, did my policy of encouraging caterating by Indians ultimately lead to this, which it did. Of course. Mm -hmm. Was he thinking about that and feeling sick? Mm -hmm. I don't know. He never said that. Probably went home uh, and was like, just take another wife and that'll make me, <laughs> that's what cheers me up. <laughs> well, he actually, we point this out. He actually, so his office is in between the beehive house and the lion house, which are still there in Salt Lake City. Oh, yeah. So all these buildings, if people want to go see them, they're standing. So he's in his office and instead of going to either one of his homes where all his wives are, he leaves and it says he goes to his upper mill, which is up City Creek Canyon. He just leaves for a while. Really? Yeah. He just needs to get out away mm -hmm. from everything so pulls his old adam potaby seven brides for seven brothers when the world gets too much you got to go up to the trapping <laughs> cabin i hear you bud yeah well <laughs> well yeah i'll try not to so. be um, a snarky ex-mormon and go on a tour to the temple square and be like was this the room that brigham young <laughs> and wilford woodruff met with yes i've been there it's it's pretty like being a history nerd it's pretty surreal and just to be standing there for me right where Lee must have been Whoa. reporting this chills in this little tiny corner, you know, this big, just thinking, mm -hmm. wow, with this thing I've written about and studied, it happened right here. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's pretty surreal. And people can take tours of that right now. Um, so they're re, um, not refurbishing, they're renovating, not renovating it. They are restoring it. Yeah. So a, a friend of mine is, in charge of that, restoring it to its historical, what it looked like historically. So it's pretty cool. So eventually people will be when that restoration process is finished. But I got to go in there. We, uh, My co-author and I, we tried to go to every single place that we wrote about in this book. So pretty much everywhere you read about in the book, we've been there. Including the darkness of the oh, hearts yeah. of men. You've been inside the darkest. <laughs> That's true. We've been there caves <laughs> of human figuratively speaking. Ugh. We've been there too. Absolutely, yeah. So next time we can talk about you know go into what's what starts after this initial cover up, how it continues to grow to the point that generations later, even you know Latter Day Saints, even local Latter Day Saints don't really know like what 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 happened what was that what why was it done um all of those stories that fall out of collective memory if you don't have published scholarship on it and so that's why it's we thought it was important to do this book so people can comprehend again not to justify it understand it but just understand what happened um so we could finally know and like fully the full story and learn from it, talk about it, seek reconciliation and healing and move on. And hopefully move on to this story getting picked up for a nine part <laughs> HBO series. Eventually Hollywood listen. Yes, We've already got, please, please. I, it's, 
but it, the, <laughs> it would be so script's good already written yeah. and it has yeah. got drama. It's got things that you would think would be made up that aren't It's just outrageous and insane. And it would be so wonderful if somebody could just do the real good, <laughs> like high quality acting Hollywood treatment. Thank you, Kara. Well, design. thank you for doing a multi-part podcast, YouTube series. I just like getting there. smarter. If, the, if I'm the <laughs> only one who watched this series, I'm just like, I'm a smarter person now. <laughs> and I'm friends with Barbara Jones Brown. Oh, <laughs> I'm friends with Kara Burrell. <laughs> oh, that was a waste. Of course not. So thanks for, yes, doing the series with me. Please go pick up a copy of Vengeance is Mine because we are never going to be able to cover everything that is even in this book. And um, again, the audiobook does such a fantastic job. It's on uh, Kindle or ebook, hardback and audiobook. Yeah. So you've got no excuse. And um, I'm really grateful for everyone who has been uh, tuning into this series and following along with us. It makes it really nice to be able to get into this detail. We can tell the story as thoroughly as possible and do justice to something that has not had a lot of justice given to it. So thank you guys so much for subscribing to this channel. I just hit 50,000 subscribers on my birthday. You guys, thanks so much. You know that you can get the Mormon History Hoedown on wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple, Spotify. And I'm always looking to get some more monthly donors are amazing. So hit my links below to either become a one-time or monthly donor. And since I run a 501c3 nonprofit now, when you go to my donor box, all donations are tax deductible in the United States. Well, Barbara, it has been an honor to have you in for another episode. Thank you again. And any other final words? Go T-Birds. <laughs> zero seven zero. <laughs> me and Barbara both found out. So I actually, I, I moderately, I'm interested in history, but mostly I really feel connected to Barbara because we both went to Timview High School. So... We walked in the door and we just went like T-Birds for life. <laughs> and then we both lived in LA in our early 20s. Yeah. And we're both fabulous. <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. Okay. All right. That's it for this episode of the Mormon History Hoedown. Love you so much. Bye.